0: Are you sick of paying a crazy amount of your hard-earned money to Uncle Sam? Yeah, me too. But of course, we legally have to, but let's not pay them a penny more than what we should. So let's talk about ways physicians can save money on their taxes. What's up, everyone? Welcome back to the Financial Residency Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Nidman, and very excited to jump into this whole month we are actually gonna be talking about taxes. And now some of you are like, well, I'll see you in September. And that's cool if you're not interested in learning how to save a boatload of money. But we're gonna be going over something really important because over the last several years of owning my feeling financial planning practice, Physician well Services, I get asked basically this question all day, every day, aside from paying off debt and invest, it's, hey, how do I pay less in taxes? Well, my friends, I have some really exciting news No, I won't be able to tell you how to save six figures on your taxes. That'd be super cool if I could. But we've mentioned it before briefly on the show. We are now opening up for the wait list for any physician who is looking to work with a CPA that actually specializes in working with physicians. Casey, myself, and our guest today, John McCarthy, who's a CPA and has a team of CPAs behind him, we have all teamed up and are now offering tax planning services. Our firm is called Physician Tax Advisors, which could be found at physiciantaxadvisors.com. And here's why this is important to you. We're all taxpayers, right? Well, I hopefully you're paying your taxes so you don't go to prison. But the best way for taxpayers to implement a workable tax plan is to meet with a professional like doctors. CPAs who offer tax planning services take the time to look at your financial health and then diagnose any areas where mistakes and poor planning can actually cost you money. It's also a good way to look for any missed opportunities that you as the taxpayer could use in the future. So if you're wondering who will be working behind the scenes at our practice, we're kicking off the month, like I said, the whole month of August, talking about different tax topics, and I'm bringing on John McCarthy to head up our tax side on this show. So I can't wait for you guys to meet him. I know it's going to be great. As always, remember, you can ask us questions about anything you've heard on the show. You want to connect with John, you can do that. John at physiciantaxadvisors.com. You can shoot me an email, ryan at financialresidency.com. Or it'd be even killer if you could go to financialresidency.com slash question and record your question for the show. So either way, I'll see you on the other side of the show. Let's jump in and hang out with John. John, what's up, man? Welcome onto the podcast.
1: Thanks for having me here, Ryan. Appreciate it.
0: Of course, I should say welcome back because we had you on like way long time ago when there was like four listeners. Now there's hundreds, but it's a little bit different now. I'm excited to have you here. I've already told kind of everyone in the introductory part of this show that we've now partnered up with starting Physician Tax Advisors. I am so excited to be doing this. I know you're excited to be working with more physicians. And so I thought, I'll bring you on the show and you just solve all our problems. Tell us how we pay Uncle Sam less in tax in like 30 minutes. You got this, right? No
1: pressure at all. None at all. I, I just it. want at
0: least five figures of savings. If you could do that, we're great.
1: That would be great. This will be the most popular podcast ever if we can hit
0: on that. I mean, if you could save everyone five figures, I think this would be the most popular podcast ever. But you know, <laughs> joking aside, there's some ways physicians can save some tax. There's common errors that we see in returns that we've chatted with you for years and years. You've been doing, obviously, my returns for years. We see common mistakes that they're making. And so I think it'd be really helpful to just to say, like, hey, here's ways that you can actually reduce your tax liability, either through deductions or credits. So why don't we actually start there? Deductions versus credits.
1: So I think it helps first to define our terms a little bit. And when we're talking about deductions and credits, it can get a little bit confusing. So, you know, it's kind of good to step back and talk a little bit about the difference between the two. First of all, both of these things are good because they they help reduce our tax liability, but they do it in different ways. So, you know, tax deductions are good because they reduce income on a dollar for dollar basis. That does help reduce our tax liability. Credits are even better, though, because those reduce your tax liability on a dollar for dollar basis. So. Up to you know maybe a three or you know four times benefit with a tax credit. So we're always looking for tax credits first because those are a little bit better benefit than the deductions.
0: I'm going to stop you there really quick. Can you just maybe give a quick, easy numerical example of deduction versus credit, like how that would flow through? Because some people listening they may be jogging or driving or whatever, and that this is a very important point. So I want to stop it really quick and just kind of maybe give some real basic math.
1: So common type of deduction that we would be looking for have available would be something like a 401k deduction that we would take at work. You know, if you're employed, you're a W-2 worker and you have a 401k available to you, you know, by contributing to a 401k, you're going to reduce your taxable income on a dollar for dollar basis by putting that money in the 401k. And when you have less taxable income, then of course, you're going to have less tax when we multiply it times whatever tax rate that you're in on the credit side you know, a popular one here would be a child tax credit. So, you know, if you're at a certain income level, you're able to take a two thousand dollar per year and per child tax credit, and that reduces your tax liability by that two thousand dollars, not just the income. So that that's even better.
0: Yeah, and so you mentioned the four oh one K and so we sometimes hear it where we talk about paying down debt and all this other good stuff and Sometimes we say, hey, go put money in your 401k to get the match and then you know take care of some of the other pieces and then start to max it out. And sometimes it's like, well, I don't want to max out my 401k. And it's like, well, not only from an investment standpoint is a tax deferred, right? And then it grows tax free and then comes out and it's taxed, but I want to just quickly run through a little bit of of math for those that are like, well, I'll put some in, but not everything. If you made a hundred thousand dollars and let's say one person puts eighteen thousand in. And the next person puts 10,000 in that difference of 8,000 that you're not putting in that you're going to spend or do whatever it may be ends up costing you about 18, $1,900 in tax, which I don't want to pay uncle Sam any more than I absolutely have to. And you'd be essentially paying yourself. So as long as you don't have like crazy high credit card debt and are stacking, you know, tons of personal loans on top of this stuff and I know we've talked about on previous shows but just from a tax standpoint I normally don't jump into it but that's a bunch of money to not have to pay so like that's a good example for that so you know there's lots of different retirement accounts right we've got 401k's or 403b's that you can max with 19,500 the 457b's if you have those could be another 19,500 and then there's you know the solo 401k's if they have 1099 incomes so maybe talk a little bit about how those Maybe would relate to each other in terms of tax, like the solo 401k or a simple or a SEP. Yeah,
1: so you'll hear a lot of acronyms out there for different retirement savings accounts. And a lot of what you're able to contribute to depends on the type of work you do. So, you know, if you're a W 2 employee, you're typically going to have, you know, whatever retirement accounts are available for you at your workplace. For a lot of people, that's a 401k. Sometimes it's a 403b if you're working for a nonprofit organization. And then, you know, with, with some you know, hospital groups, you sometimes have access to 457 accounts as well. So those are the ones you would typically see. On the self-employment side, we have some, actually some enhanced ways to save for retirement beyond you know, what a typical 401k would allow you to do. So, you know, when you're self-employed, the government looks at you as both an employee and kind of employer of your own business, so that's an important distinction because you've got some additional opportunities to really save you know, quite a bit more money than your W-2 employees would be able to. So the common plans that are available there are called a SEP IRA and a solo 401k. And both of those plans allow the opportunity to have a, you know, an employer match to them. And you can put quite a bit more into those You know, for this upcoming year here for 2020 in a 401k, for example, you can put up to 19500 in for the SEP and the solo 401Ks, you can put in excess of $50,000 in for the year. So, you know, really can turbo charge some retirement savings when you're self-employed.
0: Yeah, and, you know, one of the things that I think when we start talking into tax and very specific things, you know, we talk married filing joint, married filing separate, then there's single, head of house. And I guess there's differences between all of those that you need to understand. Because sometimes we see, student loan repayment options come through where we know that if you're going to go for forgiveness and you're going to have, let's say, repay is going to be where you're at. But if you filed married filing single, there's now some tax issues that they're going to run into. But the savings might outweigh that if they get forgiveness. And I want just a high level. I don't want to go crazy. We could probably do a whole show on this. Really, I mean, honestly. Quickly touch on the file joint versus filing separate, and maybe things that they need to be just aware of when they're looking at doing this type of analysis on their own.
1: Yeah, it's an important topic, especially for physicians, because as you mentioned, you know, student loans can be a big part of your overall financial situation. So, you know, it really is something to take a look at closely. Um, the key for most folks, if you know, if there are, aren't student loan considerations, is that. I would say 95 percent of the time, you know, with some small exceptions, that married filing joint generally is going to save the most in taxes for most clients. Where the wrinkle comes in is for folks that have student loan considerations, especially if you're on an income based repayment plan, Uh, because sometimes by filing separately, we can make a dramatic impact to those student loan repayment monthly amounts by filing separately. So you know what we like to do in our firm is you know provide what those tax savings look like, and then you know your advisor can also take a look at that and and weigh the what the current value of those tax savings are versus the long term value of the potential student loan repayment being forgiven. And what we find in a lot of cases is that that student loan forgiveness is is worth a lot more than the tax savings. So as much as we don't like paying a little bit more taxes, uh, you know, as the tax guy, you know, there are reasons to do that sometimes.
0: Well, Uncle Sam's then going to foot the bill on the back end to give you forgiveness on your student debt. So secretly, we're sticking it to the man right now. It is a big consideration. So what are some of the big downsides? that people need to be aware of if they file separately? Because I know that this is where we can get into some issues around just different retirement accounts, different issues, the way that they look at their tax situation just as a whole. Yeah,
1: so there are some credits and deductions and and things that we can't take advantage of when we do married filing separately. For instance, student loan interest is no longer deductible, but depending on your income may not be a big deal for you. Certain IRA contributions are also extremely limited There's a $10,000 income phase out, which pretty much most people are are not going to be able to contribute to a regular IRA account if they're doing married filing separate. And then there's things like dependent care credits and and other things that phase out at a very low level when you file separately. So going back to, you know, that's where we find that, you know, most people will strictly from a tax perspective are not going to come out ahead filing separately.
0: So how can those that are independent contractors, We actually work with a lot of emergency medicine physicians. I don't know how or why that has come to be, but I'd say probably 35, 40% of the people that we work with are just that one field or or specialty. But if you are an independent contractor, what are some of the things that you could do to potentially save tax? Because a lot of this we've talked about has really been around the W-2 employee. There's been a little bit that's been for the 1099 folks, but- Specifically, if they are an independent contractor you know, or, or even, let's say, they're a business owner, they own part of the practice, what are some of the things that they might be able to save money with?
1: Yeah, so there's a number of areas here you know, sometimes that we see missed um, when people are self-preparing their tax returns. You know, and these are things that we focus on when we're helping our clients you know, hopefully come up with the best uh, tax answer possible. The big one is obviously retirement account savings, um, which we've already hit on a little bit uh, earlier in the call here. But there are a number of other smaller expenses that sometimes it's easy to miss if you're kind of scrambling at the last minute during tax season, filling out your forms and not quite sure if it's deductible or not. But these would be things like you know, scrubs, potentially, depending on what area of medicine you work in, licenses and dues um, for for any medical licensing or any organizations that you belong to that you pay the dues for on your own. Any training that you do, if it's not reimbursed by your employer already, you know, there's potential for some deductions there. And then some of the bigger ones that we see often missed are around, you know, home office type of expenses as well as mileage. You know, if you do maintain a dedicated area of your home as an office, you know, there's some special deductions there where we can basically prorate the cost of you know if you own your home some of the home ownership expenses or if you rent even and um, we can take a prorated portion of that rent and the IRS just requires it to be a dedicated area so it can be even a part of a room if uh, you know you just have a desk in one one corner of the room that's fine as well as long as it's dedicated to work and that opens up some additional deductions for us there
0: i was gonna say let's go in to make sure we classify what dedicated workspace is because it's not your living room where you're watching tv and the kids are playing or let's be honest going crazy that doesn't count right it has to be its own standalone place but it could be a part a corner of a room and then you would prorate that portion of the room and i think john i i mean i get a lot of questions i think it's pretty safe to assume this is one of the biggest areas that we see people screw up is right is what what can you actually deduct, what is actually a qualified expense, and kind of working through those pieces. So I'd maybe like to stay here just a little longer, go in a little bit more on common, maybe mistakes that you're seeing or other things that they might be able to capture.
1: It is a little bit more of a complicated area, so I think people, uh, you know, are afraid of uh, deducting a home office a little bit. They feel like maybe it leads to more audit risk. I mean, the, the truth is, as long as it's an honest deduction, and it's a dedicated area, like you talked about earlier. You know, it's a completely valid deduction for the return. So the key is making sure you know the square footage of the area that you're wanting to take the deduction for, and anything that goes along with the upkeep of the home is kind of fair game in this area. So, you know, we talked about rent mortgage interest, real estate taxes if you own the home, as well as utilities. So, you know, think broadly here, you know, security, electric, water, trash, anything that that's a part of upkeeping the home is included, as well as internet uh, coverage, telephone, anything along those lines.
0: So, with internet coverage or telephone. So, I use my cell phone. Let's just pick on me for a second. I use my cell phone for work, but I also, you know, call my mom because she tells me to, right? Call my dad, call my cousins, whatever. So, I use personal and I have business. What's the best way to kind of tackle that piece for cell phone and then for internet usage, right? My wife uses the internet. She's doing some you know, calls from home, some clinic stuff from home. Like she's now doing that, but she's W-2, so she can't write that piece off. But I obviously run the podcast. I run this. How much can I deduct? You know, if, and if someone's thinking this, like how much can they deduct off of this? What's reasonable in the eyes of the IRS?
1: Yeah, so we like to be conservative in this area. And one of the ways we see is the best way to do this is, you know, you don't want to deduct 100 percent of these costs because the IRS does realize, you know, your cell phone, you're playing games on it, you're calling mom. It's not 100 percent business use in most cases. But we do see that the IRS is willing to accept generally, you know, a 70 to 80 percent usage rate on that for business purposes. So we feel that that's a pretty safe deduction. As long as we're giving the IRS a little something there and saying, hey, yeah, we know this is a 100% business use, then uh, they tend to be pretty forgiving on that.
0: Yeah, I think that's really helpful to understand just a little of those pieces. What about big things? Like my AC blew up. I had to spend 10,000 bucks to do this. And is it prorated a piece of that? Can I deduct some of the maintenance that's needed? Because my office, let's say, is 10% of my home. And which I wish it was, I'd have a nice office at that point. But if it, let's say it's 10% of my home and I just had a you know massive failure, would I be able to actually deduct a thousand bucks off of that new AC unit because of that?
1: Yeah, so this is an important area that we see missed quite often when people do their own home office deduction if they're self-preparing their return. So if you actually, if you own the home, you're actually allowed to take a portion of the original purchase price of the home as part of that home office deduction it is a small piece because you know for one we have to use the square footage of the home so let's say you have a two hundred thousand dollar home and it's a ten percent is dedicated to your home office you're only at most going to deduct then twenty thousand dollars over the lifetime of owning a home in addition to that the irs makes us deduct it on a very slow basis so we have to divide it by 27 and a half years. Not sure how we ever figured out 27 and a half, but that's the IRS code for you. So we would take that $20,000 that we allocated from that fictional $200,000 home, and we would deduct that 20000 over 27 years. So it is a small number, but everything does add up. You know, it does help offset your income. So there's some value in taking that.
0: Yeah, that's the useful life that they've basically pushed out. And we're going to get into real estate in a second with some tax pieces, but when you go to sell the home is there some recapture back like how does that work
1: yeah it's a great point ryan that's something once again that sometimes is a surprise to folks that have been taking a home office deduction over the years that you know the irs does take that into account if you sell the home later on for a gain which you know if it is your primary residence normally that gain is excluded you know there's some rules around that that we could get into but we'll keep it brief for this conversation but if you do sell it at a gain that depreciation, which is that deduction that we're taking based on the home value, it can be recaptured as a part of that gain process when you go to sell a home later on. So it's something you want to plan for. You know, It's not going to be a tremendous number for most people, but you know, it is is something that we'd want to know about beforehand.
0: So I talk about uh, obviously different types of accounts, retirement accounts, all that good stuff on the show. And I mentioned the HSA and I was like, this is the coolest account ever. It's triple tax advantaged. Maybe just uh, tell everyone, because I think this is another way that some people are like, oh, I know I should probably look at that, but then they never get around to it. It's, oh, someday I'll do this. Someday never comes, right? So maybe just talk a little bit about the triple taxed advantage portion of the HSA.
1: HSAs are great for savings. What we see, you know, a lot of advisors will treat that as uh, almost on par with the same importance of saving for retirement accounts and getting them hatched there because they are such important accounts. First of all, when you contribute to them, you're saving from a federal income tax perspective and social security and Medicare tax perspective by contributing to them. So your payroll taxes for the year or less by putting money in there and that money is allowed to grow tax free, you know, as long as it is in there. So, you know, it functions kind of like a retirement account in that respect. All of that is, is growing tax free. The strategy that we see quite often for folks is that they will then leave that money in there. You can take it out and pay for medical expenses. You're certainly allowed to do that at any point in time. But a lot of people will allow that to grow tax-free for many years. And it can be used for medical expenses in retirement, or you can even take that money out once you've met the age requirements and only be subject to income tax on it in a way that's kind of similar to what an IRA would, would look like. So, you know, there, there's some pretty good advantages to putting money in there. And that's why we see a lot of advisors will will focus on that um, after meeting some of the matches, you know, 401k match you know, that are available through the workplace.
0: Yeah. So we've talked about keeping good records and, you know, being able to track those things what would you recommend in terms of like keeping those records to then pull that money cuz if i pull it out in 20 years like i better have some really good records to kind of go with it so what what would you recommend on on how we would keep those records or what that would even look like
1: yeah so one of the big advantages that we mentioned is you know leaving that money in there and then pulling it out at some later date you know perhaps in retirement and if you've kept all of your medical receipts you know all during this time that the money has been accruing in the account, and you can pull it out without any income tax consequences at at the end of the day. So that's a great way to do it. The IRS could, in theory, come back and say, hey, I want to see your receipts from the last 20 years of medical expenses because you've got 20 years worth of HSA money in there. So it is a good idea to keep good records. The IRS will allow digital receipts. So, you know, if you don't want 20 years of medical invoices sitting on your kitchen counter, which you probably don't, you know, you can scan that stuff in, put it up in Dropbox or Google Drive, and just make sure you label it really well so you can find it. Yeah, that will suffice for the IRS purposes.
0: Yeah, we always tell clients, you know, here's a Google Sheet. We've kind of outlined what it is. Here's where to put all those receipts. Just save it by year, make it easy. You're already tracking it in this Google Sheet as like kind of a dashboard feel. But yeah, I think if you were to go withdraw twenty years of receipts and it, you know, liquidating that account quite heavily, you might have a little audit risk on that piece where they're like, Hey, we'd like to verify that two hundred thousand you just pulled out, you know, tax free. We kind of want some of that money, even though it's not theirs to take, right? So it's the sexy topic right now, real estate, everyone's talking about real estate and how you're going to get these great returns and great things. And then, oh, by the way, you get some tax break, right? But no one really goes into the tax break because they don't honestly probably understand it. So having a CPA on to kind of dive into this just high level, I think we're probably honestly do a whole show on this. But, you know, tell us some of the ways that if you were own real estate, how you would get it, whether it's a primary residence or investment property, like how does taxes play into the real estate investment piece of your let's call it portfolio
1: so you know this is once again this is an area if you're not familiar with the real estate side of things go see your cpa the first year you file your return Uh, this is an area we see a lot of mistakes in honestly and a lot of it comes down to the idea of depreciation that we just talked about a little bit with the home office deduction because the same type of rules come into play with rental property so in general your rental property is taxed like other types of income. You will record your income you know, that you receive for rent. You're allowed to deduct the expenses that you have for you know, cleaning or repairs or utilities or anything you know, related to the rental property. And then you're going to have a net profit from that activity. The difference here is that once again, you paid something for that rental property and you're allowed to deduct that, depreciate it over that 27 and a half year life that we talked about earlier. So what this ends up doing for most folks that have rental property, you know, the hope is that you're cash flow positive. Uh, that's a good rental property. But for tax,
0: purposes, if you're not making money, you probably bought it incorrectly. But uh, continue tax strategy,
1: <laughs> yes. So hopefully we're cash flow positive. But from a tax perspective, when we add in the impact from the depreciation expense, what we find is most of the time we're at a loss for tax purposes. So, you know, in that sense, it's kind of like a tax shelter in that, you know, you're bringing in cash, you know, there is more cash hopefully in your pocket at the end of the day for having the rental property. But from a tax perspective, we might not have to show any additional income, you know, in the years that you're operating it. Once again, the caveat here is that when you go to sell it, you know, there are some consequences that we have to take into account because of that depreciation, just like what we talked about, the home office deduction.
0: I think it's a great thing to own some real estate. We obviously invest in it. This is what we know, like, and trust as well, just from a diversification standpoint. But there's lots of pieces that kind of make up on the real estate side. And John's been very helpful with how we've put together. Because like I said, John has done our returns for five, six years now. And you know it's been an honor to work with you and i'm so happy that we're partnering together on the physician tax advisor piece and you guys are going to hear a lot about john because we are going to be like i said in the intro going to be doing tax for all of august going through all the key pieces that we think you need to kind of know and we want to start this off right with you know how physicians can just pay less than tax because no one likes paying either the banks or the government more money than we have to So John, thanks so much for being on. I know next week we have a fun show for them, but thanks for being on this week and uh, talk to you soon. Yeah,
1: pleasure being on and I look forward to some future discussions.
0: All right, everyone. Well, I hope you were really excited to learn a bit about tax. Hopefully you walked away with some potential tax saving tips, things that could save you some cash so you're not paying it all to Uncle Sam. Like I mentioned at the beginning of the show, we have launched Physician Tax Advisors at physiciantaxadvisors.com. So if you're interested in joining our wait list, we did a wait list. It'll be first come, first serve. We know that there's going to be tons of people that are going. We want to make sure that it's fair for everyone. So if you'd like to work with a CPA that is doing proactive planning, not reactive tax preparation, you actually want to try to save some money on your taxes, highly, highly encourage you to reach out to us at physiciantaxadvisors.com. We'd be thrilled, loved to have you guys work with us on the tax side. So remember, everything we've talked about here is for educational purposes only. It's not specific financial planning advice or tax advice. Please go reach out to a CPA, a financial planner, or you can reach out to us if you don't have either one of those, and we'd be happy to help you out. But again, education only. This is not specific financial planning or tax advice. I will see you guys on Friday. Have a great rest of your week. Take care. Cheers.